Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and before we dive into this episode, I wanted to take a moment to share with you a new unique travel opportunity we have with Captain's Collective. As many of you know, there's no shortage of trips to go on, and the amount of opportunities can be overwhelming. And that's why we've taken the time to put together something that we believe will not only be a top quality trip, but also offer some elements that no other trip can. We've teamed up with my friend Kyle Schaefer in the Soulfly Lodge to offer a trip to the Berry Islands in the Bahamas to chase after bonefish and permit. The trip will be on November 20th to 24th. There are a lot of special perks with this trip along the way that guests will get to experience. Soulfly is an incredible lodge tucked away in a remote location surrounded by amazing fishing, great food, and filled with some of my favorite people, including the legendary Percy Darvel and one of the most fun people I've ever met, Travis Sands. What makes this trip unique is that you get to be a part of the behind the scenes for the podcast. Guests will have access to a photographer and videographer during the trip, and you'll get a chance to sit in on live recordings during cocktail hour and hear stories from our guests. We will have a special bonefish seminar during the trip where we can learn more and grow as anglers. There are a few other surprises that we're throwing in, but for that, you're going to have to sign up. If you're interested in coming on this trip, you can learn more by heading to captainscollective.com and clicking the travel tab. We hope to see you soon. Now, let's dive in. Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Turtle Box Audio, Florida Fishing Products, Costa Sunglasses, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we spend some time with my friend Cody Rubner and discuss how he went from working in the outdoor industry to guiding on the water in Stewart, Florida. In this podcast, Cody shares about his background in marine biology, an interest he's had since he was a kid, and the ways that his love for science has impacted the way he views his fishery. Cody also talks about how one of our previous guests, Chris Herrera, helped him find his way into chasing a wide variety of fish from a bay boat after starting off in a small skiff. From sailfish to snook and permit, the Stewart fishery has a lot to offer, and it's been a great home for Cody to begin his business. We dive into things that many younger anglers and guides deal with, like how to learn from mistakes and how, with a little bit of intentionality, you can surround yourself with a great group of mentors. We hope that you enjoy our time together. If you love this podcast, it really goes a long way if you leave a review, subscribe, and share it with friends. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. All right. Well, hey, Cody, appreciate you for having me over, getting to crash here and fish and see your fishery and just uh, experience everything that Stuart has to offer. Been south of it, been north of it, been west of it, and it was really cool to come here, see all the pieces come together. Had two beautiful days to get to hang out on the water. Got a chance to see some really cool stuff, which is great, you know, roll with what the day gave us and got a chance to see that you know decent bit of species and yeah i mean the fact that you got back to back good weather days in this winter you i think you should probably play the lottery before you yeah before you hop back on the road yeah we were sitting on the boat and it was just like both of us probably it was like just very few days that i just had the sun on me without 20 knot winds or felt warm yeah. we were tucked away we even found a little bit of clean water and it's yeah. like man I, it, at one point we said are we in the keys right now and yeah. it's like it's cool that that still exists there's a lot of different dynamics going on with the weather and water and everything with the fishery but the fact that like you can still find just just shows how diverse this area is meanwhile there was big boats bombing offshore to go get in on the crazy sailfish bite we were Mm -hmm. running further up the river to do that thing it's the diversity here is you know the spice of life yeah and i can't wait to get back and do the sailfish thing unfortunately the weather didn't give us that but i think that's the 
one of the cool things here is like a lot of the fisheries that I go to and the people that I hang out with, it's, it's a lot of skiffs. And then here mm-hmm. you shift over and you see more bay boats so that you have that ability to adapt to whatever the day's given you, whatever bites going on, get outside, chase sailfish. You yep. know. When I moved here, I had a skiff and I fished it for a little bit and had a very rude awakening. I actually like, I kind of jokingly say, I rage quit my skiff because I had one day where I was fishing a seawall um, with a buddy and a sporty came by and put a huge wake on us. And like, I noticed it kind of last minute and I'm like, Oh God, grab the cameras, grab everything. We kind of scrambled and it came right over the bow. And I remember yelling in every four letter word, you know, and the yeah. book came out and I was like, I'm selling this thing the moment I get home. Yeah. I loved that skiff. But I was just like, it, it's not feasible here. And what you saw. So I run a 23 foot pathfinder and what you saw for this area, I mean, you know, float in a foot of water or run out to 250 for sailfish, everything in between. That's, you need that for this area. With chasing after like the sailfish and the jacks and like kind of pushing outside Mm -hmm. for you, do you have a preference on staying inside and doing what feels like a little bit more kind of what you came from in the skiff side of things like technical, or do you like getting deeper into blue water? And I, I hate to take like the, the middleman approach to the answer. Uh, I have like fish species ADD. I love to do a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. but that being said, my, if I was going to spend one day, my heart would be run out the inlet and get on the beach. Yeah. Jacks, tarpon permit, stuff like that. And knowing that it's, it's that beautiful middle ground. What's cool about this area is you can do all three of them in a four hour trip if mm-hmm. you wanted to, depending on the bites. But, uh, my heart would be on the, on the beach, I think. Yeah. So rewind me back a little bit because I know your introduction into fishing was through the bass world, which I've interviewed. I mean, a lot of people, that's where they start, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's really easy to access. It's close to their house. They were a kid, they could ride their bike, Mm -hmm. but tell us a little about a bit about your story of getting into fishing, then getting into the fishing industry, Mm -hmm. then shifting into more of the, the guide side of things. Yeah. So I grew up on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Um, you know, love for fishing. Everyone's got that like early life story. Mine was a little pond by my house. My parents used to take me down to it. I was like the energizer bunny as a kid. I couldn't do anything longer than five minutes and couldn't stick with any, you know, sport or activity longer than a couple months. And fishing was the only thing that like I could consistently do that kept me calm. I was locked in on it. So my parents would always take me down with the little Dino, the dinosaur push yeah. button rod. We catch a bunch of largemouth, And then as I grew up, got a little bit older, did a bunch of striped bass fishing. And as I grew into, you know, teen high school years, got into bass fishing more and more and was doing a lot of kayak bass fishing mm-hmm. and really fell in love with that tournament scene. I think that's like around that, that time that, that that's really compelling, right? It's like, yeah. wow, look at this. It's the, the NASCAR of fishing and you see it on sports center on a weekend or ESPN, they would be playing the, you know, some of the tournament highlights. And so I really love that. I had no intention or no path really to get into the tournament fishing side of things. Yeah. Uh, and I went off to college at the university of Maine and to study marine biology because they had a really good program and my passion and love for the ocean was taking me towards being a biologist and i went up there and at the end of my freshman year i remember connecting with a friend who said oh i've got a buddy from my hometown in maine and he's like this stud bass fisherman he loves he does all the tournaments Mm -hmm. with his dad and he you know he does like all the local tournaments and he's going to be coming here to college next year so i'm ending my freshman year he's getting ready to come in and he's like, I got to get you connected with him. So I connected with my buddy, Brian, 
and we hit it off with our love of you know that that whole game and yeah. uh he had the boat i had the passion as well and i'm like we should you know make a club university of maine didn't have a bass fishing team we're hours and hours north of the border we're like 13 14 hours from any tournament in the college uh like the northeast division or the eastern division and i said we should make a club mm -hmm. and fast forward a year and a half and all the steps that it took to do that whether that was the paperwork and the logistics of in the school and what it required to build a fishing club we built the umaine fishing club and the umaine bass team and then we started traveling traveling around fishing the flw tournaments and so I got this like college is a there's a lot of different perspectives on college nowadays mm -hmm. for me it was like you get these reps of like these practice reps for yeah. for life and the club I got to do the fundraising and sponsorship management and community organization with the, with the other students and monthly meetings and all these different things and it led to traveling around the country fishing a bunch of different tournaments in New York Potomac River Chesapeake Bay and we had some success early, which was really cool too, but I fell in love with that tournament scene and got to experience it through work and school. Mm -hmm. And that also led to some relationships of like, oh wow, there's a whole industry around fishing and look at all these companies from sunglasses to boats to coolers to everywhere in between and to get to network and meet those people. And it's really cool now to look back at some of the people that I met when I was just a college kid with a jersey that was covered in logos. Yeah. And then eight, nine, ten years later, those guys were my colleagues. I was working with them at other companies. And uh, so that was what led into my, uh, I guess, my feeling out process for the industry. Yeah. And college is interesting because for me, when I look back to college, the greatest things that I learned and took away from it were really the soft skills of networking, mm -hmm. you know, learning how to do time management too. I mean, you're learning how to, how do you try to figure out, take your syllabus. And I remember taking all my syllabus and I would basically like make a huge one page sheet that I'd have on the front of my folder of like when all the big assignments are due. Mm -hmm. And so you're learning all these little skills like that in life so that you're able to, you know, do go mm -hmm. and pursue the things you love. And so you're picking up all these soft skills, the networking, the entrepreneurial side of starting a club. And mm -hmm. you know, it's to me, that's sometimes what, when you meet people who are wanting to, how do you start your own business or how do you start your own club or how do you start your own podcast or YouTube channel or whatever? Mm -hmm. A lot of the people who have started these things have started 50 other things before what you see. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And you end up learning how to get scrappy. The entrepreneurialism uh, is a really important dynamic of it. But mm -hmm. like there were, you know, to travel to these tournaments to get a really cheap Airbnb and just pay for the gas to tow all across the country, the gas for the tournament, you scout for a couple of days and then you have the tournament day and you go home. It would cost a couple grand. And when you're a college kid, you don't have a couple grand. So you have to figure out like, how am I even going to pull this off? And then you mm -hmm. start to work with the brands and get creative fundraising opportunities. But you also kind of learn how to deal with hurdles. And we started off early traveling. And then I remember there was some rule, like uh, rules around student government, like, oh, well, there's only two of you going while well, our budget's getting tight. So you're only allowed $250 or $500 per person, whatever the number was. And I'm looking like, okay, well, there's only two of us on this bass team. I wish I had other boats to bring a bunch of people. How can we work to expand this to, you know, cause right now I don't have $3,000 to pull off this trip. So mm -hmm. 
seeing that there are these hurdles and also teaching yourself that there are creative ways to get by them in a very, you know, it was a softball situation. Like there was the, the failure opportunity. I was yeah. there to get a degree. I wasn't there to be a professional bass fisherman. So you have this opportunity to practice those, those soft skills that yeah. you talked about. And those translate perfectly to now I'm a dude with a boat and a truck and I got to build a business. Right. And mm -hmm. those same skills are now a little bit more important because it's real life and yeah. adult income, but college provided a really cool opportunity to, to practice that. Yeah. I heard somebody say that he was talking about, you know, people look at all these different entrepreneurs and they see the businesses that they built and they don't realize that they had five, six, seven, quote unquote, failed businesses before that. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that every time that a business fails or you sell a business, you take with you all the lessons and all the skills along the way. And so mm -hmm. I think sometimes that's, that's a, a, a hurdle for people that they don't want to jump because they're like, what if I start it and it doesn't work out and now what do I do? And I think just being willing and for me being around different guys who are in the fishing industry, just seeing like, man, they've tried and done a bunch of stuff and walked away. And eventually you find the things that you love and that work mm -hmm. for you and you ride those waves as long as you can. How did you get from the biology into the industry and how'd you get from the industry into guiding? Cool. Yeah. Well, so the f two parts there and I'll, I'll try to take them pretty far down the path on both of them. The first one would be Really loved the science side of things. That was my passion. And, you know, looking at uh, really famous researchers and explorers of the past and everything, all the different places you could travel as a marine mm -hmm. biologist, all the things that are still left to be learned about the ocean. That was what drove me into marine biology. And I always joke when you start off in marine bio as a freshman, there's like 350 people in your class. And there's a bunch of, you know, blue eyed smiles, young kids who are, I'm going to play with dolphins and I'm going to, you know, swim with sharks and I'm going to work at SeaWorld. That's freshman year. By junior year, there's 30 people in your class. And they're like, today's entire lesson is on chlorophyll. And you're like, okay, this is where you get into the trenches. And so I did fine with that transition, but as things got tougher, I started to notice that just my personality and skill set, I, I was a little bit different than some of the other people in the class. I was not as tailored towards like lab work. I did way better at um, verbalizing and communicating what was going on with science. And I was better at interacting with, you know, my friends who weren't scientists and trying to explain to them what I was learning or what was going on or what I cared about than I was you know, sitting in a room full of my peers doing lab work. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I started to get a little bit disconnected with the School of Marine Science as my years went on. But when we got to our capstone research, you know, your research project that you have to do as a senior all year, and then you present at the end of the year, um, I ended up winning one of the awards for best verbal presentation. And here I was thinking like, you know, I'm this a little bit of an outcast from the rest of my peers in the science space that they were way better at the intricacies of the lab work. And, and over time where my career has gone, I've really learned that like, Oh, my role in this space is maybe a little bit more of like a, a community communicator than yeah. it is the guy with a vial and you know, the tweezers or the clipboard. And so, um, that compiled with the experiences that were going on with the bass fishing club and the, and the mm -hmm. fishing club and all these, you know, I started to get opportunities to do like internships for like marketing and community research. And it's like, hold on, why am I doing them 
you know, a, a marketing uh, internship, but I'm a marine scientist. And it started to all blend together. Mm -hmm. And I was getting into photography at that point. And it was this like all the pieces, you never really know where you're going, but I was mm -hmm. kept getting handed a new piece every couple months. And I'm like, oh, this is like starting to come together is like, I think I working in the fishing industry would be where I want to go with things. So um, that was what led me into the industry. And then I got a, a job out of school. It didn't really work out. Um, I still had a lot to learn and, and a lot to, you know, grow up as far mm -hmm. as understanding what it meant to be a professional and the dynamics of where it was located. And I had a really interesting transition where I went from being a senior in school, you know, I was in a fraternity, I was very involved, I was doing the bass fishing, I, I played basketball, I had a whole, you know, like the big fish in a small pond type ethos. And then I transitioned out of school, had to move back with my parents for a couple months. Mm -hmm. First job after college didn't work out. Uh, I had a relationship uh, that had some, you know, nightmare stuff that crumbled with it. I ended up getting hurt. I'd had one dog my entire life and she passed away in this mm -hmm. window. And so I kind of like hit a, a, a rock bottom, quote mm -hmm. unquote, where I was like, man, this is tough. I went from like everything was buzzing and going good to now I'm at home with my parents with no money, just lost my pet. I have no clue where I'm going with my future. I'm single now. Like mm -hmm. I had this, this, uh, awakening moment, I guess, where I was like, I just got to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so I had been connected through mutual friends that we have, Joe Gugino, who actually at the time, it's really funny because you just interviewed Mike, who's now a close friend of, of many years and a mentor down here with me. But he was trying to get me. He's like, the Martha's Vineyard Derby is going on. And Mike Holiday from Costa is going to be working the table. Like, you got to get yourself out there. Go meet him. Get connected with Costa. And I didn't do it at the time. I was, like, super depressed. I, like, barely leaving my house. And I missed my first chance to meet Mike. A couple months later, I think I was somehow connected with Todd Barker, who worked at Costa. Um, and... I kind of pulled off a, a little bit of a lie and I was like, I just need to make a change. And I hollered at Todd and I said, Hey, I'm going to be in town. I, don't, I wonder if Todd even knows this story. Yeah. I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be in town. I'm going to visit some friends in Florida from Massachusetts. Could I swing by Costa and just get coffee and learn a little bit more about the company? And I had no friends in Florida. I just grabbed a couple hundred bucks and I was like, I just have to do leap. something. Yeah. I need to make a leap. I can't sit at the bottom. And, uh, went down, met Todd, interview was fun. The next day I went back um, and, and met the rest of the staff. And a couple months later, I ended up getting a job offer from Costa. And so that was what it took me from going from Massachusetts with basically nothing going to this dream opportunity where I was like, the way Costa was flowing at that point, I was like, I live this brand. Mm -hmm. Conservation, fishing, wild times, travel, you know, all the dynamics of the, the work tasks of this role, this is going to be my dream. And I just packed up a car. I had like, you know, a couple things and a couple fishing gear and just booked it south. And so you moved to Daytona. Is that I did. The, yep. And then that was kind of, was that your introduction to Florida saltwater? It was, that was my, my first time fishing Florida saltwater was in my interview, uh, with Todd. And I think we caught maybe two redfish during that and moved to Daytona and Daytona is an interesting setup. There's, you know, kind of the touristy, side with all the beachfront hotels and bike week and stuff mm. like that and uh yeah daytona's really interesting i got i had no money at the time uh loved my gig it definitely wasn't a cash cow reason to come across the the country and so i i got my apartment the room that i was renting off craigslist which is like 
the easiest path to die. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say the easiest path to dying. So um, I ended up sharing a uh, a two one with a dude and his little pit bull in the heart of Daytona, and uh, it was dirt cheap rent. And uh, you know, I that led me to just going for it. I was like, I'm yeah. here to work here. You know, I would just show up, work all day as long as I could, as be as engaged and stuff as I could. If there was ever like, hey, there's an event tomorrow in Tennessee, I'm like, I'll go. You mm-hmm. know, like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this. And I just like dove head first into the Costa gig for three years. And then when I came up for air, I was like, wow, look at all the places I've been and look at all the things I've experienced. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, they look at stuff like that and they're, you know, a friend, John Dunaway and I have talked a lot about the the thing that is within us all to want to say, well, it must be nice to get a job with Costa. And they miss that, you know, there are certain sacrifices made or risk taken. Mm -hmm. When you look back at that season, obviously there were a lot of risk that you took that paid off. Mm -hmm. Um, But did you have any like moments where you, you had that kind of desire to take a risk and you took it and it fell apart or, I mean, well, so I was working just I'm still kind of this way, but I'll just run my battery to zero, Mm -hmm. but I will just go as long as I can. I will push that, you know, my metaphorical trolling motor battery until it's just barely limping and it shuts off. And then I'd have like a health issue or something. And I ended up like, I was supposed to, when you talk about the fun part of it, like I was, the project I was working on was redesigning a sprinter van that was going to be this epic Costa sprinter van. And it needed to go from where it was getting refurbed in Colorado to California and you can drive through the mountain pass there. And so I flew out and I said, all right, I'll get it to the California event. And I flew out there, picked it up and a giant snowstorm hit. And like, you get like avalanches and stuff and the pass freezes. So I had 48 hours or 36 hours. I'm stuck in Colorado. I have to get to California and there's a massive snowstorm in between. So Mm -hmm. I had to drive South to New Mexico over through Arizona up to California. And I drove, 25 hours nonstop without sleeping without the only stops I made were basically getting gas and it took such a toll on my body. It put me in the hospital in long beach, California. Wow. So I had these like, and fast forward, when you look at like people pop up in your story over times and you realize Mm -hmm. that's one of your people, the person who was like, Hey man, I'll leave the event. I just heard you're in the hospital. I'm going to come sit with you. It was Mike holiday. Mm -hmm. So me and Mike have some really funny, not podcast worthy stories of like sitting in the ER in Long Beach, California. But I definitely had times where I was like just drinking from the fire hose and like had to learn. You have to take a deep breath and like sometimes take a, take a step back. Sometimes the risks and the rewards, uh, aren't always worth it. Yeah. And different people struggle with different pieces. So like one of the things that I try to do every year and it's a little cheesy, but it's helpful to me is like, I just pick a word that I want to focus on that year. So this year for me, I, I picked thoughtful. I just want to be more thoughtful with what, with what I do. Mm-hmm. And for that to happen, it requires me to think more deeply about the stuff that I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm. so if I'm looking at, okay, in two weeks, I'm going to be at this place. Like I'm trying to slow down and be like, what's something that I could do to thank that person or what's something that I could do to make that more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And then when I get like really fast pace and I lose it, then I look back and most of the times when I look back at like a trip, I'm like, dang, I wish I would have slowed down, mm-hmm. thought a little bit more about it. And so I'm working on that. Even with this trip, you know, we were joking cause I forgot my bag and I didn't bring my bag. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, if I would have had four more hours 
in the two weeks leading up to think about the trip. Mm -hmm. I could have had better things that I brought with me. I could have brought more, like I could have brought thank you stuff or, you know, like little things like that, that mm -hmm. actually end up going a really long way. And I think people just have to learn, Hey, like some of us are a little too gas and that either results in physical burnout or mm -hmm. just a lot of regret or missed opportunities. And then some people, there's so much breaks. They never, they never even get a chance to make a mistake or they never get a chance to experience something or, you know, go to, I've done, I've said yes to some things and then been stuck at them for two or three days and be like, this sucks. Mm -hmm. This absolutely sucks. And then I just try to say, okay, I tried it. I learned some stuff. Let's not do that again. Yeah. For you, what were some of those kind of other moments that led you towards, okay, I want to get into the water. I want to be on the water every day. So I was on the road a ton, which like you said, like looking, I have zero regrets. I love this chapter in my mm -hmm. life. And I always tell all the people I work with and the people that gave me those opportunities, I owe everything I have to them opening the door to, you know, uh, to me and giving me those opportunities. But I was on the road a ton. Um, and definitely when you tell, if you told a bunch of early to mid twenties guys, like you can be on the road, you'll have a company credit card, you can go fish with all these cool people, go all these cool places. Like, yeah, it's amazing. And, and I loved every second of it, but I also did have this certain level of like taking a deep breath and be like, okay, where do I actually want to go with this? Because that's not what I want my, my life to be. And my career with Costa ended up transitioning into running the pro program. Mm -hmm. And so for a couple of years, my whole life was like, managing these relationships and, and partnerships with the best guides, captains and tournament anglers around the world. And like, holy crap, like what, what a just, I'm, I'm really, uh, really value mentorship. I think you can learn so much from mm -hmm. so many different people. And even if you don't align with someone or they're different than you, you can always take something from someone. Mm -hmm. And I got this like playbook from all these best, incredible captains all over the world. And like, I just drank from a fire hose with that too of like, wow, I can learn from, from all these different people. So that ended up like when I got to bounce around and be with all these guides, like they were my heroes, you know, mm -hmm. and like maybe a little bit of it sounds fluffy and emotional, but like that was what I looked up to. Mm -hmm. I didn't look up to the people, you know, when I did events down in Miami and we'd stay at Airbnbs and you see all the fancy cars going around and the giant, you know, 500,000 foot yachts and stuff like I don't look up to those people I looked up to the people who are like the hard-working guides that everyone said oh you get to go fish with this person dude that guy is dialed that guy yeah. knows this estuary he's so connected with the ocean that guy's a steward of his waters he represents our community it's like uh, there's a rap song that I think starts with like the real street people were my heroes and it's like I kind of looked at fishing guides I've always wanted to be a guide. I have funny iPad videos from when I'm like 12 where I'm like, hi, I'm Cody on bait breath charters. Let's go catch a bass today together. Yeah. And we're in a pontoon boat. So that had always been at my core when my career took that path and I got to be around all those people. I was like, oh, this is, this is it. Like, this is where I'm going. I don't know how I get there from here just yet. And it's probably not one clean step, but that's where I'm going. Yeah. And you said that for you, you know, you try to take something from everyone, which I think is something we have in common where, you know, to me, if I hang out with somebody, even if I'm not going to fish with them, even if it's not going to become a relationship, I feel like if I don't learn something from them, I'm actually doing myself a disservice, mm -hmm. you know, and I think some people are like, oh, I can't learn from that guy. Well, you learning something from that guy does nothing really 
for him. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually robbing yourself. When you look back at some of the big lessons, like you were talking about, you know, you're kind of putting together this playbook. Mm -hmm. if, if you were to actually write out a playbook, what would some of those big moments, big lessons be? And can you start with what scientist or what biologist or person in that space had the most effect on you maybe early on and then kind of walk me through some of the other big stuff? Yeah. So to kind of go, you know, uh, in sequential order from the scientist side, it, it really, that came not maybe from a person, but I guess from my dad, like mm. growing up on Cape Cod and fishing on the beach every night, you know, my dad was just a super hardworking dude. My dad worked at one company for 50 years, mm. like half of a human's life at one place. How you can't find that anywhere now. Yeah. Right. So I had a role model that was just like, it doesn't matter if you like it or not, or if you're like my, I'm sure my dad wanted to leap to go anywhere else than work at a supermarket for 50 years. But like, you show up every day and you work your tail off. And mm -hmm. so I loved uh, the ocean from growing up fishing with him every day. I had that role model of like, it doesn't matter if you like it, whether you're in high school, I, I hated school. Even though I was like a nerd, I didn't like school. And I mm -hmm. always like tried to the, the bare minimum to get a B or a B plus to just get myself through while I did all my passion projects. But, uh, got into marine bio and there was stretches of marine bio that I didn't necessarily enjoy, but like, mm -hmm. you still got to show up, you still got to get your reps, you still got to do it. Um, as you look forward more towards my professional career, I being around guides, there were like fishing related things that mm -hmm. I picked up, but I don't think those are necessarily the lessons that Matt, you know, Hey, do this with your leader. Hey, yeah. that's, you know, that affects my performance on the water. I need to retain a, a thousands of those things, but those aren't like the valuable life lessons that I took away. Um, early on, we talked about Chris Herrera. I think that you've had him on yeah. the podcast when Chris and I got lunch at his barbecue spot and we were talking about guiding and where I was going. I just got my skiff. I think I just got my captain's license before this conversation, but we had a good talk about like, what do you actually want to do? Like mm -hmm. what, what type fishing do you like to do? And that was a really good life lessons about putting your goal on a whiteboard and then unpacking it from the air. So like, mm -hmm. don't talk about how are you going to get there? Look at what you want to do. You want to be a bay boat guide. You want to fish, like you want to fish a bunch of different fisheries. You shouldn't stay in Palm coast, Florida, where it's skiff oriented and the target is redfish for 85% mm -hmm. of the trips. So then to start to put your goal somewhere and then unpack the steps to it. That was a very uh, valuable lesson early while I was working at Costa. Uh, Mike always uh, just like drilled into me, do the right thing. Always mm. do the right thing. Even if it might not be the thing that's going to get the most resounding reviews from your boss or your colleagues, or, you know, it's going to be to the detriment of yourself, whether physically, emotionally, financially, just always do the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, little things like that probably had way more of an impact on the more literal decisions I make day yeah. to day and have probably helped guide me towards a more successful future than any of the like, Ooh, get this type boat or buy, you know, mm -hmm. this type reel or fish this way, you know, that it's bigger than that. When you look at, cause both of us, like, I think I met you probably four years ago. 2020 ish, probably 2020 ish. Yeah. That sounds about yeah. right. Right. Kind yeah. of like pre COVID, but yeah. like 
really pushing into it because yeah. I was doing some stuff with Benny at the time. Mm-hmm. You were doing some stuff with Benny. I was in the fall. Yeah, I was in the yeah, fall. So, of and that was like, and then during that season, because I was traveling with him, and we had this great idea: is like record an episode, mm-hmm. and then people like the guest on the show, and then they can go listen to the podcast, which mm-hmm. was a great idea. And then boom, COVID hit, and then it kind of. I mean, everybody was trying to do TV shows and podcasts and stuff during COVID was super challenging. Yeah. So with, with that, um, you know, I was like, Oh, here's another younger person in the industry. I mean, we're still super young for Mm -hmm. the industry. The people who are really sitting at the table who have the, the strongest presence, you know, are people who have earned it over 30 years, you know, Mm -hmm. but with, with some young people, it's like, you can be around a lot of good people and not know how to actually, get the most out of that mm-hmm. and build a network and build mentors and build allies who can help you. And mm-hmm. what advice would you give to people for trying mm-hmm. to put together? Cause I know you're a really great networker. You're really great. And you don't do it in a sleazy way. That's like, you know, I paid you a thousand dollars for this interview. Yeah. I thought yeah. we were going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what, a like what advice would you give people to trying to like get mentors and allies and people in your, in your, on your side? Um, hmm, that's a really good question. I would say one of the most impactful things is you don't think that people see the work that you do in the dark, but the people who you need to see that they do. Mm-hmm. And whether that's like, I can think of probably a very literal example, but it's, you know, late nights, early mornings, and it's the things that you wouldn't want to do, you know, like, Hey, I want to be the vice president of marketing for this incredible company one day. Well, if you're the event guy, it starts with you. Like one night we had a cage for all the marketing assets and Mm -hmm. it would always get disorganized. And the team went out to go do like a little, like team get together dinner night. And I was super upset with how it was all laid out. And it's like, this is like being way too much of a try hard, but Mm -hmm. I stayed while they all went out to dinner and cleaned the marketing cage and like organized everything. So when people came back in the next day, they were like, who the hell did that? Yeah. And for most people, they walked by that marketing cage and didn't even notice that the pile of crap was a slightly more organized pile of crap. But that's when like, you know, the leaders in a company will come say like, dude, we've seen that you've been working your tail off behind the scenes to, and so like those little things that aren't, if you want to be the vice president of marketing, you don't want to be the best at organizing and planning your event assets, but you can show like, Hey, I'm willing to get into the trenches to do the mm-hmm. things to get to the ultimate goal. You can put off those values and, and people will put, pick up on that. The same with guiding too, you know, cliche, but you know, are you the first person to launch? Are you out there on your days off when you can be, you know, scouting, trying new things? I think that's a, a really important thing and recognizing that, it's not always sunshine. Like you, you don't just get to start off, try hard for a tiny bit. Like there's no set timeline. Mm -hmm. You don't start guiding. And after 18 months, you're totally settled in. You have a client book and all things are going well. And you're an expert on your waters. You don't start working at a corporate job. And after 18 months, you've been promoted to the vice president because you're so outstanding in everything you do. Sometimes it just takes a lot of time. And I did see a lot of I would say maybe uh, guys and gals that are like a couple years under me that were trying, they got their foot in the door at different companies in the fishing industry. And I think they expected it to like make these big leaps right away. And I think the path is like, just go in and put mm-hmm. your head down and go as far as you can. And then when you come up for air, you're like, 
Holy crap, I got a little bit further than I expected to. Yeah. Now, I think another thing that is challenging, and I'd be curious your thoughts. So when you're young and you're trying to, you know, have mentors in your life, you're mm -hmm. also trying at the same time, you're trying to work hard, you're trying to figure things out for yourself, you're trying to balance all these different things. The reality is when you're young, you're, you're like a kid, you're like a little kid mm -hmm. in the, in the industry, or you're like a little kid in the, the fishery, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense that like, sometimes you're going to make a mistake, sometimes you're going to, you know, whether it's on the water, you're going to mm -hmm. enter a situation incorrectly, and you didn't realize it, or you weren't paying enough attention, or mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had tons of those moments, everything from like over promising, under delivering to in the industry to being on the water and not paying enough attention and inadvertently cutting someone off. I mean, just all mm -hmm. sorts of things like that that happen. How do you recover from mistakes rather than having those things become these huge markers on you? I think it's the humility of realizing you're not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So if you think you'll be perfect. And then I, you know, I come in around a corner, I kind of cut you off or whatever. I'm just using that example and going off on it. Like if I think I'm the best young guy ever and I never make a mistake when you show me some like, uh, you know, resentment at the ramp, I might be like, screw you, Hunter, you didn't whatever. If you come up and you're like, Hey man, you cut me off. And I'm like, my first response is like, Oh no, did I cut you off? I'm really sorry if I upset, like if I messed up your yeah. day, I think that approach to things is like. And also sometimes you just have to go like, man, I was late on this assignment. I made the wrong decision on a guide trip. I don't, I purchased something I can't afford financially. I made a bad decision. Like sometimes you just have to be humble and be like, I made a mistake here. Yeah. And I think I, I got really comfortable with like being a, a student of the game and recognizing mm -hmm. like you have to be humble when things go well. And you're like, man, I pulled that off this young age. I'm feeling good about that. And then the next day life's going to hand you lemons and throw you right back down. And the right answer is directly in the middle of those two. Mm -hmm. So don't get too high. Don't get, don't get too low. Yeah. For me, I, I had this conversation with somebody on a different podcast and they were asking me and, and I still see myself this way. Like I try to view myself like a younger brother, mm -hmm. you know, it's like the, a, a good younger brother, yeah. know, depending on what type of family you're yeah. from. And so like a good younger brother is like, man, I'm so grateful for the people. Like, I don't think I can beat up my older brother. I don't think I'm better than my older brother. Like, and just learn having a posture of humility, having mm -hmm. a, a posture of, Hey, there are probably some things that I can do to help people along the way. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a part of this, I'm still part of the family, but I know my role in where I sit on it, you in know, the hierarchy. Not, in the hierarchy yeah. of things. And then one of the challenges though, I think with this is, you know, in, in fishing in life and in any industry that you're trying to build a network, you're trying to have mentors and then not to overuse a buzzword right now, but there are toxic people or just people who are like, dude, mm -hmm. just, I can't, I, I don't necessarily want to be mean to you. I don't want to, I don't want how I treat you to make me look bad. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like I want distance. Mm -hmm. How have you thought through dealing with people who, you know, we talk so much about how do you get close to great people? How do you try to create distance with people who, who suck? These are deep questions, dude. I thought I was going to get like, how do you find pilchards in the spring or something? Yeah. You're totally taking me <laughs> off the rails. No, I love it. Um, I think recognizing that for a vast majority of people, you should always, you can always show everyone respect. That does mm -hmm. not mean you have to like and associate and operate with them or get into business relationships with them or over communicate, you know, Intel insight, whether that's on the water, on land. Um, 
but you can always show people a baseline respect. You don't owe it to everyone to be everyone's friend. Mm -hmm. And also as I've gotten into the fisheries management and the water policy advocacy side of things, like it's some people are going to hate you. Like there are just some people, there are people in this world that hate you and hate me. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting here today and we can't do anything about it. And when you recognize and realize that some people are just on a very different wavelength than you, you know, they're on their own path. They're the main character in their own movie. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're the bad guy in it, but you recognize like, I can't change that, but I have to know who I am and what I want to be and just remain really, really rock solid mm -hmm. to that. And I think when you do that, you'll attract the people. I've been so lucky that like, I just keep going down the path and like, people hop in along the way and it's like, mm -hmm. wow, nice to meet you. Oh, you do this. That's really cool because I do this. And like, you know, you seem like you're someone that fits in my story. Those people will come and the people that don't fit in the story just kind of naturally, sometimes it comes to confrontation or like tough conversations, but naturally those people will kind yeah. of fade out of the story. They don't fit the story. Yeah. And I think it's, it's tough too, because you, you just have to realize that I think you said, you know, not everybody's going to like you. And I think that's a lesson everybody's trying to learn and not everybody's going to understand you and not everybody's going to value what you're doing or agree with what you're doing. And one of the things that I've tried to do is, and it's really hard is not allow the negativity to rob me of all the good people and good things around me. Cause you it's really know, hard. Like you can have people cause it's, it's really tough too. when there's people where like, you know, in your own backyard who are saying, Oh, this guy's, you know, a fraud, this guy's not legit. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he, whatever stuff they're saying, if they're painting stuff, your intentions a different way, like you could spend every day waking up thinking I'm going to make the world a better place and here's how, but in their story, the way you're doing that is yeah. bad practice or bad intentions. So like, do they get to tell you what your intentions are? That's, it's really tough. Yeah. And you're, and you're not hearing and you're not seeing all the support and all the love and all the good things around you because you're so busy thinking about that pebble. It's like a pebble in your shoe, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, and just trying to remove that. Another thing that's challenging, I think for, for young people is like, you want to be humble and you also want to be confident that, mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, that you can learn things, you can grow, you can evolve, you can build a business, you can, and you're, there's, are you familiar with the phrase imposter syndrome? I was thinking it in my head. I was yeah. about to tell you, it's something that I've, I've struggled with a lot because I think you, when you're struggling to do something that fits, right? You're like, man, I'm trying to be a guide and I just can't get the trips or whatever. So I'm not really a great guide and I'll just stay in my lane, you know? Yeah. But what happens when things start going good? What if you get a bunch of trips? What if your career starts taking off in a, in a different industry as a scientist or a marketer? Like, are you a marketer? Are you a scientist now? Mm -hmm. Are you a guy? Like, and this is one I always come back to, like, who sets the rules for yeah. any of this? What is the bare minimum to be any of these things or be successful in any of these things? You kind of realize that, you know, you set your own, mm -hmm. own gauge for those, but the imposter syndrome thing is really difficult. Yeah, that's been a struggle for me. And I think what I've noticed about the imposter syndrome thing is like, if you think about the two types of people we were talking about in, in your life and in, in a fishery that you're interacting with, if when you're dealing with imposter syndrome, what it does is, you know, the people that you're trying to not give too much time to, and you're like trying not to meditate on like the person who, and I mean, you hear like false things about you. They're like, this guy, this guy does X, Y, Z. And you're like, I don't, I don't do X, Y, Z. That's like, mm -hmm. I didn't do that. Or like, I only did X and you, you got it wrong. Like I, mm -hmm. you know, or I said that was a mistake or whatever. Right. It like lets that, it gives that too much space. Cause you're like in your mind, you're going, yeah, they're right. 
Like mm-hmm. I suck. Like I should just go do model trains and never fish again. And then on the other side, like the mentors and the people in your life who are trying to encourage you saying, Hey man, like, dude, I'm, I'm proud of you. Or, Hey, I'm really excited about what you're doing. It doesn't let you receive it. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the water situation down here. It's letting a bunch of bad water into your life and it's pushing the good water out mm-hmm. and imposter syndrome will push both of that rather than just being like being honest where, you know, if you're acting, if, if you're faking it and you're like, I'm, you know, I'm this amazing caster and then you get with somebody and then it's like, dude, you're not an amazing caster. And it's like, why did you, why didn't you just be honest? Or I think that's a really hard thing for people to try to find that balance. So it's really cool that, that you have, you know, worked through that. And I feel like it's probably a lifelong battle, but it's something that like you have to take the responsibility of like, Hey, my, you know, my circle of what I can control, mm-hmm. like I'm going to take responsibility over that. Mm-hmm. This guy over here who like, dang, like it sucks. Like this guy would be, this guy knows a lot about the fishery. This guy knows whatever translated into whatever business you're in. Mm-hmm. Like this person could be a huge like asset to my life. I could have a great relationship with this person, but I can't control how they are, how they are. Yeah. And there's probably reasons and I'm not a therapist and I didn't go that <laughs> yeah. route in life of why they are that way and what they need from their dad or whatever's going yeah. on over there, you know, <laughs> but like, I'm, you know, like my job is not going to be to fix this guy's, you know, wounds in his life. My job yeah. is just going to be to try to like build something that I'm proud of. And so it's been really cool to watch you get your, your business off the ground. So let's talk a little bit about this because you go from bass fishing up north Mm -hmm. and at one point you're doing like kayak stuff and then you get into the skiff stuff and then now you're in a a a bay boat Mm -hmm. and you're doing um very different things than what you were doing up you know up north of here with with redfish Mm -hmm. so you went from like chasing redfish in a skiff to being in a place that like maybe people catch one to two redfish a year yeah you know what i mean so there's a huge this is probably the worst red fishery in florida uh yeah i mean it's closed right now you can't can't keep them i catch two to three a year. I think the guys that fish more shrimp on jigs and stuff like that probably get into some puppy yeah. drum a little bit more. Um, they might know some little pockets that there's yeah. there's a group of but they, there's, 100 fish that they beat up on or whatever. Yeah. But it's not. It's definitely not a good red fishery. Tell me about how you've managed transitioning through different styles and different fisheries because you haven't just transitioned through different styles. I mean, you've, you've made some massive, massive fishery shifts. Yeah. Um, it... It's all compounding. I think that's the first thing that you recognize. A lot of the things that I look at that I took from my bass fishing days go into my techniques and tactics like that we use mm-hmm. this morning. I, you know, we were, we were fishing tarpon today mm-hmm. in, a, in a slightly deeper place where they had access to a shallow bank and a, a deep water. And I think at one point I said, like, you know, it really seems like this hot zone for you to be able to interact with them with the fly is in that 10 to 15 foot range. The, mm-hmm. the shallow ones up tight, I don't think we're getting to, and these deep ones are getting back down deep before they see your fly. So making the boat decision to like turn and parallel the bank, which is a bass fishing, you know, strategy where it's all the large mouth are in four to six feet today. So instead of setting up here and casting out the bank, I'm going to turn my boat four to six feet mm-hmm. and stay in four to six feet while I work down this whole zone. So I learned that strategy in bass fishing and applies to how we approach something today. So recognizing that like, you know, their, their behaviors change, every fish has its own personality, um, really fell in love with the fly fishing thing at the end of school at, and after school. And as I got around the culture of, you mm-hmm. know, this is where the hub of fly fishing yeah. is, is the Southeast. So 
especially that, you know, the keys culture and the flats culture and then, um, expanding North, um, fell in love with that, but it was interesting. I work with uh, Blaine chocolate on some, and he's an outstanding fly tire and fly mm-hmm. innovator. Um, and we were talking about bass fishing. He said like, man, a lot of fly fishermen don't want to admit how much bass fishing has had influence on fly fishing, where it's like how that lure works in bass, even if it's made out of rubber and lead might influence how I design a fly here. So they all are really interconnected. It's a more generalized path to start in fresh water and end in salt water or, and, yeah. and I don't want to say graduate to, because there might be some different intricacies, but like. I got the pleasure to work around the professional bass fishermen, you know, MLF, FLW, uh, bass and be around all the different classics. I think I got to go to four bass master classics in a row and those dudes can catch some damn bass like in in an insanely efficient way. Mm -hmm. So like there isn't a full graduate. If you put the best saltwater angler on those bass boats, they're not going to perform the way those guys do because they're experts in their craft. And so when you can appreciate everything, put it on its own table and like, again, that like grab different tactics and mentalities from all the above, I view it as more compounding than necessarily Mm. like, oh, I'm making a jump to the next one and I'm back at ground zero. Yeah. You know, it's, I I don't think it's that, that way. So tell me about this. When you look at the saltwater fishing world and you look at the freshwater fishing world, you probably have more experience with both from an industry side and a angling side mm-hmm. than a lot of the people that I've interviewed. What do you feel like saltwater is missing from freshwater? And what do you feel like freshwater is missing from saltwater? Interesting. That's a, that's a tough one. I feel like we could write a whole book on this or like a, a pretty thought for thought provoking blog. I think your intentions might be a little bit more like tackle tactics or strategy oriented, but I can say from, salt to fresh what's interesting is freshwater gets looked at as like man these fish get pounded on they sit Mm -hmm. in a live well all day they get held up on a stage you know exposed to oxygen for minutes at a time dumped back through a tube and end back in the lake and you know there's a, a lot of judgments around the sponsorships and the gimmicks and all these different things but like the freshwater industry especially specifically the bass fishing industry was one of the first to set the tone on the value of their fish. Like Ray Scott, the founder of Bass, led like a release your catch campaign back in the 60s. And like, Mm. they were like, hey man, these bass have way more value in the water. Look at the industry that we're building on it, all the tournaments, Mm. all all the companies that are relying on healthy bass industry. And the saltwater industry, ironically enough, is probably sets the tone on culture more than freshwater does but they're a little bit behind in recognizing the value of their fish in the water. And I'm not hundred percent catch and release only. I like, uh, you know, more so near shore, offshore fish than estuary fish, but you know, I keep fish. I like fresh seafood, mm-hmm. but recognizing the value of that fish in the water and, and, uh, fish care. It, I don't think people recognize that bass fishing is maybe on the front side of that. Yeah. I think they associate it with like the keys and like, Oh, we're taking care of our bonefish now. And that mm-hmm. has value probably gets more love and more promo and there's less, you know, uh, Ricky Bobby type Talladega Nights industry around it. It feels a little bit more natural, but the bass dudes are, they're really good at conservation and maintaining their fishery fishery and getting the most value out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's an interesting angle that maybe most saltwater anglers wouldn't want to admit. They're pretty far behind in like valuing and, and, uh, 
recognizing the the value and respect for their fishery mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The other way, hmm, probably, you know, it makes me think from like a, a tackle and tactics standpoint, bass fishing is really gear heavy. And there's like, look at saltwater and look at the size of fish you can catch and look at how much we'll dial down our tackle, especially in fly fishing, mm-hmm. you know, and the size, you know, really powerful big bone fish that you can catch and look at the bite tippet on that and look at the flies that you're throwing to it. And I think bass fishing can be enamoring because like, look at the size whopper ploppers that they'll hit going across the surface and all these crazy bites. But there is something to be said for the more finesse approach to communicating to bass fishing um, that I think maybe goes a little bit underappreciated too. more so in the Northern lakes, like bass fishing, the same way saltwater fly fishing has a different meaning in every state from Florida to Maine, bass fishing has a different meaning from Maine to Florida. Just the size of the fish, the strain of the fish, their behavior, mm-hmm. water quality, water clarity. You know, up north, they'll finesse fish with spin rods, and down south, they're power fishing, you know, with 50 pound braid, 60 pound braid, bait casters, and they're pulling like 16 pound largemouth out of the slop down here in Lake O. Up north, they might like, you know, a, a five pound smallmouth might be a tournament uh, decider mm. and that could be caught on eight pound on spinning tackle on mono. Yeah. I feel like, um, there's obviously man, like guys who with in particular certain species, like they just pay a, a immense attention to detail. Mm. But if you were just to like, if, if we colonized Mars and there was water there and there was fish there and a bunch of random bass people, like mm. your middle of the line, you know, bass people and a bunch of middle line saltwater people, I think the bass people would figure it out first because one of the things that I've noticed is they have a lot of, and it may, and I've brought this in the salt water from what I've you know mm-hmm. learned and stuff too, but it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to think about first off, you know, we're going to look at where are we fish in water depth, temperature, things like that. But then we're going to, we're going to either go small to big. We're going to go big to small. We're going to go top to mm-hmm. bottom, bottom up. We're going to work water columns, sizes, mm-hmm you know, what's the silhouette like. And so there's, you know, on one sense, it's like, you know, cause I remember looking at these bass guys, I'm like, gosh, like they got like eight rods, eight dude. Sometimes like, they the got eight on one side. Yeah. Sometimes they got like, like 20 out laying next to them. Like they're uh-huh. one step away from breaking $6,000 of gear. You yeah. know what I mean? But they're doing that for a reason. Cause they also realize the value of time, which mm-hmm. my dad does a lot of live bait fishing as a guide. And so with trips in live bait, it's all about like, we got, we, we got to keep, lines in the water, water. lines in the water, lines in the water. And so those guys are like, I don't want to waste 60 seconds clipping off this jig and tying Mm. on this lure. I want to just go boom, 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 boom. And Mm. you know, like I was in the Bahamas a couple of years ago and I was fishing with Travis Sands Mm -hmm. and, um, there was a videographer with us and we were in this situation where we saw this huge laid up Barracuda. It was really cold that day. I was wearing this puffy jacket and like, you know, you like you almost don't even bring a jacket to the Bahamas, but I just happened to. Right. And, um, so I get this 10 weight out with a barracuda fly on it and it's like, throw it right. Well, within 30 seconds, a huge, the barracuda doesn't even move, doesn't even react to the fly. Mm-hmm. And then a huge, like eight pound bonefish classic pops up. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I hand the camera guy, my barracuda rod, he hands me my bonefish rod. We don't even get like the first part on video because we're swapping and mm-hmm. then boom, the shots there within, you know, we see the fish 30 seconds after the barracuda and the fish is hooked 
probably honestly 45 to 60 seconds after that, a couple mm -hmm. strips and out. And so those types of things, it seems like the bass world appreciates mm -hmm. than your average. Now, obviously there's a lot of guides who yeah, are we're speaking in generalizations, but right? Yeah. There are some, there are some saltwater guides in Florida who are like to a T all of these attributes. So yeah. we're speaking in generalizations, but also tech bass fishermen is like, you think they have one target and they put themselves in a thousand different environments to solve that one target, mm. right? So like when I, we have snook year round, fish for snook, you know, 12 months of the year, but if the snook fishing's not good on one day, there's a chance that I probably don't want to do it anyways. I'm more interested in the other thing. Bass fishing don't get that choice. If the bass fishing is bad that day, it's bad for the entire field and they have no options other than to figure it out when it's bad. And then also like you have anglers who are really good, you know, a pro will be really good at clear water stuff because they grew up near the Great Lakes and they've done the deep water smallies and stuff. What happens when the tour comes south and they have to fish in the slop or fish in the, you know, dirty, dirty water around a certain river, river with the high, they're more focused on the variables because they have mm -hmm. a singular target versus saltwater provides multiple opportunities to be like, man, you know, this tarpon fishing sucks. Let's just go catch some snook. I don't, yeah. I don't want to throw out one fish. Well, you know, they have, they have one fish to target and only one fish and only one choice, which is catch that fish that day. Mm. Are, are you good if we do some rapid fire questions to Let's kind go. of wrap it up, try to do some stuff? Let's go. I know that, um, you know, you, you're trying to improve your reading and you're, you are a reader compared to most mm. of America. I mean, a lot of people are like, I wish I read more. I want to read more. That's For scary. You, um, yeah, it's very scary. Most adults <laughs> in America only read like one to two books after education stops or something. I mean, I, the stat is like insane. I'm, I'm definitely beating them. I'm at three and a quarter yeah, at least. Yeah. Uh, two if you take away the kid's book. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> for you, what, what, what book has been most influential in your life? Hmm. Related to, related to fishing, um, moving water by Amy green. Mm -hmm. I read that about the Everglades and it was like a really clean cut, concise synopsis of the last 60 you know plus years of of fight and i fell in love with the captains of clean water everglades movement and mm -hmm. everglades restoration and um seeing how it impacts a place that i love that i want to live you know people always ask is stewart the forever and i say like yeah i don't i miss my family back home but like i and i would love to one day have a place where i can you know continue to visit back more yeah. but this is it for the long term so i saw something that impacted what I love and where I want to be and what I want to do and impacts the people that I love around me, this community that's been here mm -hmm. for a lot longer than I. So I fell in love with getting involved in, in that uh, fight. And that book was kind of unlocked to a really good, like, okay, I just got, this is the baseline now. Like I really do. A mm -hmm. lot of people just say you're new and you're young and you don't understand. And this has been going on forever. Like what if I've read a bunch of books now and I do understand like history is, you know, cl pretty clean cut. There's record of all these things that have happened, whether or not your opinion of them is, you know, yeah, different than mine, but these things happen. So books like that, that have kind of unlocked my ability to, um, do the things, advocate for the things that I love. Um, you know, that I wouldn't say that maybe that one book changed my entire life, but I would say books like that, that like mm -hmm. 
I, that's how my reading is. I think there's a book under here right now that's about the seafood industry and like how we export 90 something percent of our domestic caught seafood and we import stuff from other countries that's significantly lower quality. Like I found that book and I was like, that's a book I'll read because I want to know about that industry. But if you put down a book that's like about, you know, the history of basketball, I love basketball, probably not going to read that book though. It's, it's all these things that we talked about kind of like if you're building a superhero, who you're going to, who you want to be when you're, mm. you know, on your last breath and you're looking back at what you've become, do the things that you're putting your time into now contribute to who that person's going to be? Mm. Well, those books, you know, would, those resources would. I know you give copies to clients who mm. seem like they would read the book. If you mm. have a client that feels like you'll give them a copy of that. I know you mm. have like some Yeti water bottles so mm -hmm. you give them you have those kind of little elements it's almost like the mint on the pillow in the hotel room for yeah. you what are some mints on the pillows for running a guide business going above and beyond with communication i think you can touch you can touch their experience from before they get in the boat until after they leave um the little, you know, I do a, a Yeti bottle for the first time. People you fish with me. And if people are really interested in the issues while we're running around the estuary and talking about them, but also uh, recognizing that a lot of people that listen might disagree with this, but like there's a hot button kind of top, like your, gu your guide, your job is to catch as many fish as possible. Like I took you out today, Hunter. Did we catch every fish we saw or as many as we could have? That's the only way you can judge your day. In reality, you're in the hospitality industry. You're mm -hmm. providing, you know, uh, a comfortable, fun experience that keeps people safe, that allows them to experience things that they don't get the opportunity to do so. Um, a lot of people really just want to like experience and learn from your perspective on life. And there's like a level of companionship there. And, mm -hmm. and you had, I had these humbling moments early on in my guiding career where some of the trips that I thought went the worst by fishing performance ended up being the most valuable trips to mm -hmm. me. So that was, that was really, really humbling. And I think that would be uh, something of like recognizing that the tone in which you communicate with people actually caring about them. Like, are they getting on the boat and just giving you money and they fish for four hours and then you go, that guy was a dipshit. I never want to see him again. I've only had one trip like that. I can yeah. think of a single person that I'm like, they're not allowed back yeah. outside of that. All these people I've stayed involved in their like lives. And I'm curious, like I feel really, really humble by the fact that they're willing to spend their harder and money on fishing in a boat with me. They could have mm -hmm. chose other people. They could have chose other activities. And so, um, going above and beyond for people, I think is really important. Recognizing it's more than just, you know, bait in the live well and ice in the cooler when they show up. And yeah, to get back to like controlling their experience, making sure that when they come in, are they staying the right places? Do they know the right places to eat before and after, you know, are you giving them community Intel while you're fishing? Are they learning about your place? Do they feel more connected to you, your fishery and you know, your community when they leave stuff like that goes mm -hmm. a long way, but you also have, do have to know what you're talking about. You have to know how to catch fish and you can't don't, don't bullshit people. It's okay. You can't be the expert guide in your first year. You have to get, you have to guide for 50 years to be the expert mm -hmm. guide and then interview a 50 year expert guide where they all tell you it's just fish. We're trying to figure it out. I'm not, you know, I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And so if you have that perspective, I think the, the fraud alert can come up with people. If you're like, oh yeah, you know, it's just a front and it's just crap. Maybe you made a bad decision or, you know, 
whatever that may be. Don't BS people, just be really humble and appreciative that they gave you the opportunity and that pays its way forward in spades. Mm -hmm. So you're, one of the things I know about you is you're really dialed in on technology and keeping up with, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that has to do with the machine that you run on your boat, or if Mm -hmm. that has to do with, you know, you were sharing some really cool stuff that you can do with AI as far as changing the background of, you know, so that people can't understand where you're at, but it's Mm. still a beautiful photo that represents the fish. It represents Mm. what's going on. What do you think right now is the most exciting piece of technology that you're integrating into what you're doing? Well, I'll elaborate on that because you brought it up and people are probably like, hold on, wait, there's AI in his photos. No. So there, there are, I've always, at least in the last couple of years, I've become way, uh, way more committed to making sure what I put out is really polished and that it, it does justice for my business, does justice for the people who are on the boat and Mm -hmm. their experience and documenting what they saw and what they, what they accomplished. And also that it does some justice by the community and the fishery. And so, uh, I've always been, I have a creative side, done photography for uh, a bunch of years and always been pretty good with Adobe, Mm -hmm. um, programs. And there are ways now where like AI, in the past, I would have to go in and like manually, let's say there was a very recognizable hotel. I'll use mm-hmm. a general place. Like we are fishing today by that hotel, right? Yeah. I would go in and like take colors from around the, and I recognize every guy can't do this. I have, yeah. you know, this skill set in this technological stuff, but like I could take colors from the sky and, and blend it down and make that hotel disappear. And then people aren't aware. At least it's not that easy for people. So AI developing the last couple of years, it's really cool because you can like, the first thing people think is like, oh, he's probably making his fish bigger. It's a fake photo. Yeah. But in reality, it's like, it's not about the fish. It's not about the person. It's about protecting, you know, so I can make, uh, I can turn a bridge into a mangrove and yeah. all of a sudden things are It's a no bit different safer. than blurring out the background or turning the boat so that, yeah, you know, I mean. It just looks visually better. Yeah, it just looks visually better. And it mm-hmm. allows, I mean, if you are having to try to, move really far or reposition the boat a bunch like that is going to be harder on the fish and it's mm-hmm. going to take time away from when you're in a hot moment like if you catch a fish and you're trying to get something done pretty quick you don't have to stress too much mm-hmm. is there a marker in the background so that's i think that's a really cool piece of technology the last thing i wanted to ask you about and we can end on this is um obviously like when i'm with a lot of older guests on the show it's like i try to get as many stories as i can but you have a really fun story of a permit that you have mounted in your living room you mm. almost caught the world record tell us that story well i didn't even know that it was anywhere close to that i knew it was a massive one but we uh we were permit fishing with uh it was actually kind of cool it was uh some younger dudes who have become good friends who they were the first people to ever call me and say like, Hey, can we book a trip with you? When I just got mm-hmm. my captain's license was trying to get everything figured out. So they made the trip down to fish and steward. And we have a cool near shore permit fishery here. They can be anywhere from up on the beach. And then we have them on wrecks and we were, you know, standard operation, standard operating procedure for, you know, wreck fishing those permit. And, mm-hmm. uh, this one was absolutely schooling Estella. It was Estella 10,000. So, I mean, it's a bad yeah. reel. And it was schooling us. And the dude fighting it was like, this feels like a bluefin tuna. Like, there's no way this is a permit. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm pretty sure. And we got this thing up and just started, you know, screaming or whatever. And uh, what I was really proud of, looking back in the moment, isn't necessarily the catch. But I have a huge landing net. We got it in the landing net. We kept it in the water the whole time. 
we uh, measured it out on, on boat side and then also just took a, a piece of mono, put it to its nose, took the strip all the way back to its fork and clipped it just so we had that as like, you know, our, our, uh, our benchmark there and then did a quick lift. It was a two man lift because the fish was so damn big. It was, yeah. it was 40 and a half inches to the fork. So like when you add the giant tail in it, like it's close to a 50 inch permit, which is pretty yeah. crazy. And I didn't even know like what, what the biggest permit ever on record were, but talk, asking some of the BTT guys, the scientists who have looked into it, like that low to mid forties class is, is pushing as big as they get. And I think the IGFA world record is somewhere around 43 inches mm -hmm. to the fork. So, uh, getting close to that, I got a release mount done here locally. It's awesome to see that fish swim away. And when I permit fish, you know, in the winter, in the spring to the start of the summer, I'm really anxious to hopefully see that fish again. But, yeah. you know, I really, that's like, uh, one of those, you fish to catch the fish that you're after to say that you're not after a trophy fish is like a, a little bit off the, off the path, but you have those like couple that are like, I'm, I'm proud of that one. That's, yeah. that's, that's the one. And that's not how I judge every trip. If you asked me my most memorable trip, that probably wouldn't come up in my top five, mm. but it would probably be for my most memorable fish uh, mm. up there. Well, I appreciate it, man. I wish we could talk a little more stories, but we'll have plenty more years to do that. Yeah. And I'm just grateful for the hospitality and let me hang out. Yeah, man, it's cool. I, I really appreciate, you know, you, you have a really good product and a really good goal for where you're going with it. Very well spoken. And that all goes into a good podcast, but when, when you hollered at me or when we were chatting and kind of first came up with this idea, I said like, you know, I'd asked, been asked to do a bunch of different podcasts mm -hmm. before. And one of my favorite quotes is it's a long road to wisdom and a short road to being ignored. Mm -hmm. And so I always, I wouldn't do any of them cause I didn't want to go on and say, hi, I'm expert this. And I mm -hmm. do that. Like, that's not my voice right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I had done one podcast before and it was from a kid that I went to high school with that was like, Hey, I'm doing it. And it's kind of about like mental health and goals. Yeah. And I said, that's the angle I want to talk about my story from is like struggles after school. Where did I go? How did I get a career the mm -hmm. way I have? And so really appreciated when you were like, I want to talk about this, but more so from the perspective of like, what does it mean to be young in this game? And like mm -hmm. how you find your role? What are those life lessons? I think it's really cool that you're amplifying that stuff. So absolutely thank you man. very much man well i'm grateful for your time heck yeah let's go fishing thanks for listening to captain's collective we hope that you enjoyed our conversation together help us out by leaving a review on itunes or spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and please continue to share with friends and family thanks for listening this is the captain's collective <laughs>